You are now listening to the Motivational Jumpstart. Motivational Jumpstart. Motivational Jumpstart. Good morning, incredible people. It's your favorite motivator from afar, Mike Mallory, with the Motivational Jumpstart right here on WHU West Stores. What's happening? What's happening? Hopefully, everybody, everybody is up. Everybody is well. Everybody is ready to attack this day with purpose, with passion, with all of the different things that's going to inspire you and keep you uplifted so you can continue to pursue excellence with impeccable effort to continue to be the best version of yourself, to continue to say, you know what? Yesterday was cool. I did some pretty phenomenal things, but today, Today, today I see myself attacking this day with so much purpose that, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quadruple what I did on yesterday. I'm going to take one step forward in a better direction. Some people out there might be saying, yo, Mike, I get it. But yesterday I, I took a day off. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I took a day off. You know, I was a college student. I'm still I'm still recovering from from midterms. You know, we 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 had some professors that was giving some pretty hard exams, some long papers. You know, we got a, we got one of the most. You know, one of my incredible mentors, legends, a professor in here who probably gave a hard midterm, you know, so some of the students are still recovering. So, Mike, today I- I'm actually not feeling it. I'm not I'm not feeling it. And, and, and you know, that, that that's that might be your truth. But, you know, what 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 does taking a day off, you know, potentially what type of impact could that potentially have on your day? What what, what type of impact could that potentially have, you know, on, on the big, bigger vision the bigger vision that you have for yourself. And, and, and so for the motivational jumpstart, you know, every week, that's what we do. We, we're, we're telling our truths. We're, we're, we're inspiring the generation. We're, we're doing all the remarkable things that so many people have no earthly idea about. Or some people are honestly just afraid, afraid of. So what we're going to do before we get into studio with a very, very, very busy man, we're just going to quickly, quickly jumpstart your morning. And then we're going to be right back on the motivational jumpstart. How bad do you want it? Cause I'm out here grinding when they're sleeping. When the competition is dreaming, I'm awake achieving my dreams. I'm playing no games. The formula is still the same. Hard work plus dedication equals success. But it ain't gonna come easy. It's not gonna come overnight. You got to put your whole heart and soul into it. You got to be willing to grind now to shine later. That passion hunger that drive, that passion hunger that drive, that passion hunger that drive, when they sleep, we grind. That passion hunger that drive, that passion hunger that drive, that passion hunger that drive, when they sleep, we grind. You got to sacrifice everything you have for a dream that nobody else can see but you. It's not enough to try your best. You have to be willing to do whatever it takes. That passion hunger that drive, that passion hunger that drive, that passion hunger that drive, when they sleep, we grind. That passion hunger that drive, that passion hunger that drive, that passion hunger that drive, when they sleep, we grind. There is no plan B. All I got is one chance. All I got is a dollar and a dream. Either I'm finding a way or making it. Cause I got a dream like King, and I'm willing to die for it. That passion hunger that drive, that passion hunger that drive, that passion hunger that drive. When they sleep, we grind. That passion hunger that drive, that passion hunger that drive, that passion hunger that drive. When they sleep, we grind. For me, failure is not an option. I don't have what it takes to be happy. I was born for greatness. This is my moment. This is my time. I got too much to lose. I'm all in. Let's go. We hungry out here. We hungry. We want this. 
There's no stopping us. There's no quit. No excuses. Just resolve. All right, welcome back to the Motivational Jumpstart right here on WHUS Store. So because we're pressed for time and and because we have this legendary, incredible, remarkable guest in studio, we're going to jump right into it. I'm not going to go into his whole uh, 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 biography, his whole introduction, because we we probably would be here for a few weeks, maybe a few months, (laughs) maybe a few years, because it's so it's so deep. But but just for a little bit uh, of the 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 incredible individual we have here in studio, in studio we have Dr. Jeffrey Ogbar, an individual who was born in Chicago and raised in L.A., California. Shout out to uh, uh, the West Coast for sure. He received his B.A. in history from Morehouse College. Shout out to the house. Um, in Atlanta, Georgia. He earned his MA and PhD in history, in U.S. history, and a minor in African studies from Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Since 1997, he has taught at the University of Connecticut in the history department. He has done a lot of remarkable things. He's published. He's traveled the world. Um, he probably is the one of the most swagged out, well-dressed professors at the <laughs> University of Connecticut. And I'm not saying that because I'm biased. Uh, I'm, I'm saying that because literally, you know, once you see the playback, you don't see how dapper this incredible individual is. In studio, we have Dr. Jeffrey Oakboy. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very well, sir. Very, very well. Thanks for that, that, that gracious introduction. I, uh... <laughs> I realize I should be listening to your show every morning. That motivation—that's what I need. I need that uh, as I come to campus, get 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 pumped up, you know, for my day. No, absolutely, absolutely. So, Dr. Ogbar, what we like to do on, on the motivational jumpstart, we always like to start off by having our guests just introduce a little bit about themselves and what what makes you come alive, what inspires you. I think a lot uh, inspires me. You know, I, I, there are a lot of things I, I enjoy in life. Um, you know, family is very important. My um, my love for for music is manifested in my work, but also I do uh, a lot of scholarly work, absolutely not attached to music. And I uh, I actually enjoy working with my students. It's uh-huh. something that uh, that I find great pleasure in. I think most professors will say the same thing, even though I may have lost some hairs and with some students <laughs> over the years. But uh, I really enjoy that as well. So there, there's a lot out there. I mean, I, I'm I'm also active as an athlete, so I, I run and that kind of stuff. And uh, so half marathons mostly, but a couple of marathons under my belt. And so those are some of the things I find pleasure in, man. Absolutely. A couple of Tough Mudders, Iron Challenge. You, he some does it all. Man, we talk about an athlete. You know, we're talking about a Spartan in here for sure. So <laughs> for sure. So, so Dr. Ogbar, take us just a little bit on your journey. You know, I mean, it's been a remarkable one so far. But, you know, just you're, you're from the West Coast. Well, you're born in Shy. you know, grew up on the West Coast. And then how, how does, if you can even briefly summarize all that, how does Dr. Ogbar go from Chicago to L.A. and then to a tenured professor who is well-published, well-known in the world? How, how does that happen? So I was... Born in Chicago, my parents are from Chicago. Uh-huh. My father's side, they've been in Chicago for, uh, uh, you know, since a, probably the late 19th century. And then uh, some of my father's side had come up in the, the first wave of the Great Migration mm-hmm. from your home state, Louisiana, uh-huh. around the Baton Rouge area. And others had come earlier from Kentucky. My mom's side came up from Mississippi in the 1940s. And uh-huh. so my mother was the only one of nine children not born in the South. And so Chicago kind of ran deep in my family in many ways. But um, but my mother wanted to be a uh, an actress, decided to go to California. We actually lived in Compton. My I finished my first grade in Compton, California, and then we moved to South Central L.A., my second grade. Mm-hmm. And I lived in L.A. until uh, high school, uh, until I went to college. And so 
Los Angeles at the time was a very, in the 1980s and early 1990s, so when I was in high school in the 1980s, it was very much like Boys in the Hood, Minister Society, and it was a very different landscape than what L.A. is now. And before rap had provided a certain picture of some of the more, um, you know, crime-written, impoverished communities, I think a lot of people associate Los Angeles strictly with Hollywood and sort of sunshine, palm trees, beaches, right, right, and a right. very, very comfortable, laid-back life. Now, we hear people over the years say, oh, you know, L.A. is very laid-back or California is very laid-back, and I didn't quite get that. You know, I was like, <laughs> I didn't really you know. And so when when, Minnesota, when Boys in the Hood first came out, that uh-huh. was the, and yeah, gangster rap first, but a lot of people, I think, became more familiar with South Central L.A. in particular through Boys in the Hood and mm-hmm. subsequent movies than they did even through N.W.A.'s work or Ice Cube's work. Right, right, and, right. Uh, and a lot of people kind of understood that L.A. wasn't the sort of, you know, what they had seen. Uh, this sort of caricature of this easy, comfortable life of, you know, stars and, and, um, and you know, celebrity. So, uh, but Atlanta was great. You know, I went to Atlanta, which was a... Very different city than anything I had seen before. It was a majority black city. Uh, the, the the mayor, the chief of police, the fire department, most school teachers. Uh, the, it had the busiest airport in the world. It was run by black people. And mm-hmm. so busier than De Gaulle, JFK, LaGuardia, uh, you know, O'Hare, LAX, you know, and then run by African-Americans. And so it was, it was something to see to, to go to Atlanta and then go to an HBCU, you know, right, right, uh, right. go to Morehouse. It was a very different world for me. And it, it was really at Morehouse that provided me a uh, an exceptional space where almost anything was possible and this idea that, uh, that, that greatness was always something you should strive for. So your show resonates with the message I received for four years. And uh-huh. they, would, would, they would tell you, to paraphrase a rapper Raskas, that mediocrity is your nemesis. And so mm-hmm. this idea that you know you couldn't settle for uh, a sort of standard, a sort of average, and you should you know push and strive for more. And there's a saying in Morales that above your head, Morales holds a crown that she inspires you to grow tall enough to wear. And so that was really the beginning of my my interest in postgraduate study. I had a kind of an interest of it, interest in it before I went to college, but I, I it was a very loose idea, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So I, I started college. I was a um, I went to go into law school. I don't know if you if you know that, but mm-hmm. I'll, yeah. And then the idea of getting a PhD was much more attractive, and that's what happened. So. Uh, Pretty much from my sophomore year, I decided to do what I ended up doing <laughs> up to now, you know. So be, being an academic, and then uh, my scholarly interests have, you know, that that's actually changed over the years. And so my first book is very different from my second book, and then the third book that I'm working on now is very different. The two edited books are different. So, mm-hmm. so the subjects uh, have varied considerably. So my my intellectual interests have changed a bit. Absolutely. So just just for the listeners out there, where where were your intellectual interests, you know? at first, you know, and kind of where has they evolved, mm-hmm. you know, just, just, just to present day? So my, I think initially I was my, when I first went to graduate school, I wanted to do work on the Black Panther Party. And I was thinking of doing work on the Black Panther Party in Chicago, just doing a sort of dissertation on the Panther Party in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being a book that over time, just to cut the story short, ended up being a, a study of black nationalism between a, a 20 year period from 75 from 55 1955 to 1975 and looking at two organizations as in very important uh ideological if you want to say um 
bookmarks, if you mm-hmm. will. So the beginning of black power, with black nationalism as a sort of major force in mainstream, shaping mainstream African American politics in 1955, looking at the nation of Islam, and then the, the, the evolution and various permutations of radical resistance that will culminate with the Black Panther Party, and this sort of this is a fancy word, but the, or I'll say decline rather. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say denouement, which is you know <laughs> a GRE word, but uh, so a, sort of decline since 1975, and uh, so that became uh, this this book Black Power, really looking at the Black Power movement, and and then my next project was I had no training in hip hop. I was a fan of hip hop, like pretty much everyone, everyone I knew growing up, my close friends, uh-huh. and uh, there were no courses on hip hop. Very little scholarship started to emerge in the. Pro- maybe the late 1980s and into the 19... I don't even know if... Maybe a little bit in the late 1980s, but certainly in the early 1990s. And then I had this opportunity to... I was invited to write a, a prospectus for a book on hip-hop in around 2000. Mm-hmm. And that project uh, came into fruition in 2007 with the book Hip-Hop Revolution. Yep. And But UConn has been instrumental in, in all this. And, and this probably wouldn't have happened had it not been for the University of Connecticut, where I... Uh, was offered the opportunity to teach a class on anything for mm-hmm. a first-year experience. And I taught a one-credit class in the fall of 1998, my second year here mm-hmm. on hip-hop. It was right. a cool little class. And then the next academic year, I had to come up with a class where I owed the university a class because I had a particular class that was canceled. And so they say, hey, you know, you just teach whatever you want. Just come up with something, and you can teach it. And um, I said, okay, well, I enjoyed that FYE class the year, last year. Let me create a full three-credit course on hip-hop, and it will be what we call a special topics course. And that class was the very first class. It was so rare that there was a university course on hip-hop that the Source magazine did a story on it. And they sent a a photographer up to stores. They had a journalist who was based in Atlanta interview me, and the article came out in in, uh, September of 2000 about this UConn course on hip-hop. It was Mm -hmm. so rare. Fast forward 16 years later, uh, hip hop is taught all across the United States. You know, uh, you know, Emory, Morehouse, Harvard has a hip hop archive. Uh-huh. There's a hip hop center at Cornell, UCLA. So there's so many universities across the United States now that have courses on hip hop taught from uh, so many different disciplines, and, and it's a really fascinating thing that, to see happen. But but UConn has, as far as we know, the second oldest continuously taught course on hip hop uh, in college. Right, right. So to, to the listeners out there and to definitely to the hip-hop fans, that's a major key. That's a major key alert that Dr. Oakbar was definitely a, 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 a game-changer and definitely a major influencer within that, that, that realm of, of teaching that, that hip-hop course. So to, to the listeners out there, and I, I guess to kind of park it there because I know a lot of the listeners tuning in wanted to know, what, what is hip-hop education? You know, I mean, I know it's a lot of your interests and, 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 and there's so many things that most people don't know. What, what are the four elements of, of hip-hop, you know what I mean, and then what is hip-hop education? Uh, so the four elements of hip-hop, so when we talk about hip-hop, we're talking about a, a culture that emerged in the early 1970s in New York City in the Bronx mm-hmm. and emerged among primarily African-American and uh, Caribbean, primarily Puerto Rican young people. Mm-hmm. And there are some other Anglophone Caribbeans as, as well. The uh, elements include DJing, mm-hmm. which is you know scratching, mixing, backspinning, all that. The rapper mm-hmm. or emceeing, yep, yep. Uh, the b boy or b girl, 
or break dancer. Yep, yep. And then the fourth element, which is a non-musical element, which was actually fused to the other three elements later, is a certain style of graffiti art. Mm -hmm. And so we have graffiti artists. So those are four elements of hip-hop. In terms of hip-hop education, hip-hop has been used as a pedagogical tool throughout the United States in different capacities. And a pedagogical tool, pedagogy is a sort of um, a method of teaching, a sort of an instructional method. And it's been used in secondary, primary school level, uh, postgraduate, and it takes different forms depending on the discipline. And I can't speak that much in terms of hip hop pedagogy. I can take, I can, as a, as a professor, I can talk about how historians have engaged it, or how literature scholars have engaged, it, or even philosophy scholars. So there's a book called Hip Hop and Philosophy. There's also a book called Philosophy and Hip Hop, and people often. Think that hip hop might be reduced to the sort of corporate images that we see on TV and here on the radio, which in our, our current day mainstream commercial corporate hip hop is largely, um, you know, besides you know low ex uh, um, uh, anomalies here and there. But when we think about you know uh, you know Future or we think about uh, Migos or you think about Rick Ross or you think about Wayne or you think about these the, the, these really prominent rappers. For the most part, they have an anti-social message, and I would even argue an anti-black message, and clearly anti-woman. Like they yeah, universally yeah. call women B's and H's, they universally call black people N words, but they also talk about they celebrate all the guys I named. They also celebrate the joys of selling crack, right, and how wonderful it is, and how great it is to sell crack and kill ninjas and do all these things with women, right? Um, and so, people will find hip hop to be, you know outside of a realm of critical engagement of society in any kind of cerebral way. Like, mm -hmm. people don't think of hip-hop as being intellectual. They don't think of it as being sort of uh, introspective or thoughtful. But hip-hop, actually, from 19, from the late 70s to now, the bulk of it, in fact, I don't want to say the bulk of it, but large swaths of hip-hop provide incredible uh, opportunities for uh, exploration of everything you think of, right? So we can look at religion, and even rappers we don't think of as being particularly spiritual. Mm -hmm. You can take someone like Snoop Dogg, right? Uh, and even Rick Ross, who's super ignorant in many ways, like even Rick Ross will have inflections of spirituality and philosophical conversations in his music. And a lot of times their intention may not be to be um, to offer a, a dialogic, a, a sort of critical examination of karma or uh, right and wrong and consequence to bad actions. But you will find that in their music. Right, and so, right. and, and we could find, in fact, a philosopher like Descartes, right, mm -hmm. or, um, or even Du Bois and this notion of two-ness. And we could find that rappers have parallel conversations in their own art form. And then, uh, I mean, hip-hop just provides spaces for even conversations around love and how, uh, and different types of, of love. And love that, you know, Greek philosophers talked about, agape or eros or, you know, uh, philippa or you know, all these different things. And so we find all these uh, different forms of, um, of, of love, of spirituality, uh, philosophical introspection, of uh, commentary on mass incarceration and prison industrial complex. Actually, some of those earliest, some of the earliest critiques of mass incarceration came out not of academics in the ivory tower, but actually from hip hop artists who talked about three strikes, uh, you know, uh, policies, mandatory minimums, all sorts of things, and just again how deleterious they were and disruptive they were to communities of color in particular. Right, and right. those actually those voices came out of early hip hop in the 1990s, long before. And we think about. Uh, Black Lives Matter, we have those conversations coming out of hip-hop in the early 1990s, years before. And the last thing I'll say about this is that if you look at, um, if you look at in the 1980s, and I asked my students this, black musicians outside of hip-hop, I'll say name some of the most famous black musicians or acts that came out of the 1980s. People say, you know, Boys of Men, 
New Edition, um, you know, Anita Baker, and you start naming all these folks, right? I'll say, now, how many of those people had songs that talked about what was going on in those communities at that time, the crises in those communities, right? Like, you know, police brutality, um, think about the, the crack scourge, uh, you know, uh, homicide rates, healthcare issues, poverty, unemployment, uh, you know, corruption, all these different things, right? Zero. Mm-hmm. However, hip hop, we have all sorts of our artists. I mean, hip hop was the one, they were the ones who were at the vanguard. They were the ones at the forefront. They right, were the right, ones right. with the temerity uh, and their reverence to engage all those sorts of issues. It's conspicuous now that commercial hip hop artists, all the ones I just named, are for the most part silent on all those issues. But in fact, are in many ways anti black. Right. But you can hear, you know, I mean, from from Alicia Keys to Beyonce and every TV show that we have now from like majority of black TV shows, Queen Sugar, Blackish, um, you name it, uh, Greenleaf. They've all had episodes dealing with Black Lives Matter. They've talked about empires, talked about that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's really kind of fascinating that hip hop has sort of taken this incredible turn away from these issues that made hip-hop so relevant, I think, in, the, in, this, uh, in this sort of ex- expansion into uh, pop culture uh, 20 years ago, you know, and so domination into, uh, into pop culture 25 years ago or so. Well, so, so, so looking at that, and I know in the essence of time, we have about a seven or so minutes for you, but so, so, so in, in, in dissecting that, I, one critical part, so as a, a hip-hop historian and that, and, and seeing the commercialization of hip hop and, and, and just how it's been portrayed and, and, and just the irony of so many uh, of these well-paid or, or elitists within the hip hop world could be considered anti-black, could be considered or are considered anti-black. So many of, I guess, millennials and people may not view them as that because obviously it's mainstream. But, you know, when when did that real or would you credit that real turn to right this one we had a, a phenomenal balance in you know and after 2004 it, it was done or yeah. 2006 well, when would you say was that 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 tipping point to where oh commercialization boom this is not you know where would run dmc you know the the legend would you talk to me when he put up you know the adidas and it was like wow that 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 epic thing of what madison square garden or wherever he was mm-hmm. or out of the country but to 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 now what, what was that tipping part that so many Millennials are just this new generation have no idea because this is literally the norm. Yeah. So hip hop had all. I'm not gonna. And hip hop its origins was just straight up party music. So it wasn't about politics or anything. Throw your hands in the air, wave them like you just don't care. You got clean underwear. Everybody say, oh yeah, oh right? yeah. So, so oh yeah, right. <laughs> and so it's so always everyone says, oh yeah. So so you have uh, uh, this this party music, and then by the late 1980s, hip hop starts to take a form of sort of anti anti establishmentarianism, meaning mm-hmm. that when you had one group out of New York, Public Enemy, and you had one group out of the L.A. area, um, uh, N.W.A. Both groups offered a sort of rebel, anti-establishment style, right? That was an urban, young, male, black, cool. And it was very attractive. Though when Both of them talked about having adversarial relationships to the police and the state. But Public Enemy, when they talked about the police are tapping my phone, they were doing that because they were trying to be revolutionaries to free black people, right? Mm-hmm. So when NWA or Biggie would later talk about the police tapping the phone, it's because I'm selling crack. It wasn't because, or I'm killing ninjas. Like, you hear that in their songs, right? right NWA right, right. famously says, you know, I can't curse here. but like, No, no, yeah, F, yeah. Okay. F for car. I do a mother F and walk by, right? And so they're, like, celebrating right, drive-by right, right. shooting and killing black people, right? There's no mistake about it. So you have the NWA saying F the police. You have Public Enemy who would say fight the power, and then a, a, a 
pro-black group called X-Clan say F the police. But, they, but their, their adversarial relationships to the police and to the state are for very different reasons. Absolutely. One, yeah. a, a couch in the sort of you know, black freedom fighter tradition of Nat Turner, the Black Panther Party, uh, Malcolm X, and then the other sort of a gangster, I'm a thug, I'm a hoodlum, I'm a pimp, I'm a hustler, and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so you have these two contested anti-authoritarian styles, but what happened with hip-hop provided no space for just party music any longer. So you had two artists that came out around the same time as these. You had um, MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice. Those two guys were just party rappers, right? They Absolutely. weren't talking about anything deep. They were just like, you know, party, you can't touch this, you know, ice, ice, baby. And those two guys became sort of pariah, sort of jokes. Like when you say their name, like you, they laugh. Most people laugh, right? right like, right, oh, right. these were clowns. And so if you were to be taken seriously in hip-hop, you really couldn't just come out and just be a party rapper. You couldn't just come out and say, you know, just throw your hands in there, wave like you just don't care. You can't just do that anymore. You had to have some sort of bad bad boy style. You had to have some sort of subversive, you know, uh, element to you. And so you might come out of a tradition of most deaf or um, or to some extent common did back yeah, in the day. Common, yep. Or you take Dead Prez or some of these cats that came out that, you know, would talk about or, or Killer Mike, right? Where people would talk about, you know, uh, injustice, police brutality, they'd be pro black, they'd be militant. And then you have all these other cats that are just like straight up like, you know, yeah, um, yeah. And then the massaging became sort of a uh, uh, par for the course. And the thing is that if you have two anti-authoritarian styles, it was only one style where the state came down on, right? Absolutely. And so, and so what happened in, the, in around 1992, you have a deluge of lawsuits that came out. And the lawsuits weren't directed at people who were talking about killing ninjas. They were directed at people who said, you know, we're killing police officers, right? We're killing corrupt uh, racist police officers. It wasn't they were just killing any kind of police officers, but Public Enemy had a video called By the Time I Get to Arizona. The video was banned. Uh, uh, Ice-T had a, a group, uh, actually a rock group called Body Count, and they had a song called Cop Killer, and they actually got dropped from the label. They were protesting around them. You had an uh, artist named Paris. Uh, he was dropped because he talked about the same thing. And so you had all these people, and then Dr. Dre came off the chronic, and mm -hmm. when, he was, when he finished the, the chronic, he had a line in there where he said, Officer, officer, I can't wait to see you in a coffin, sir. And uh, Interscope came to him and said, Come here, boy, and he ran. They said, boy, you check that out of there. And he said, okay, boss. He deleted it. And we're not going to have any of that cop killing stuff in here. He said, okay, boss. And he started itching and scratching. He said, well, what about uh, all these lines where I talk about killing ninjas and slapping these Bs and Hs and running, you know, having multiple men having sex with these women that we degrade? They're like, oh, I don't care about that. It's all good. So if you hear the chronic, 1992, here's all that in there. They even have songs, you hear a skit where they have a gun in a black man's yeah, mouth. Right. So that was all fine for Interscope. But again, so it became clear when Snoop came out the next year and said, rat-a-tat-tat, -tat, I never hesitate to put a ninja on his back, and he didn't say ninja. Yeah. That was okay, right? And people were like laughing and just, oh, this is great. I never hesitate to put a ninja on his back. But when you talk about, you know, doing drive-bys on police or I'm taking, I got, I'm the one with a one-mile scope taking out, yep, yep, you know, yep. somebody's throat. And that became something that was intolerable. So, so it became a point that corporate hip hop made a very, it made a very clear uh, uh, decision to promote certain types of bad boy anti-authoritarian styles over other types of bad boy anti-authoritarian styles. So MCs that came that got put on were like, "Hey, if I'm gonna become big, I'm gonna do anti-black music," and that's what we have now. Uh, and and to just have pure party music is not impossible. But I think that, that uh, in the case, I think that Drake does it, and, and Drake does it in a way that he still has some sides because he still calls them in Beast Nations. He still has some lines where he, he'll talk about, you know, he'll, he'll body some fools, like he'll get some of his mm -hmm. boys and pay them to kill you and stuff. So he still has, like, some little, you know, and, and surprisingly, a lot of people are, are trip off of this, but Common and all of his discography 
except for one album. I mean, he calls women B's and H's all the time, except for Founding Finding Forever. You know, he always calls women B's and H's. And then he uh, kills ninjas in a lot of his albums, too. And people are surprised. Right? Yeah, but it's like they don't really listen to his music because he's talking about killing ninjas, too. And he's and people are like, wow, you're the conscious rapper. He's like, well, I mean, I kill ninjas and I call women B's and H's, too. Just like, you know, too short. Right, but, right. but he also has a song. He'll have some songs about, <laughs> like, love and, you know, affection. And, you know, he'll be out there with his videos with, you know, cards and talking about how much he loves a woman and stuff like that. So, so he also has that sensitive side. So comedy is kind of all over the place. But for the most part, uh, you don't find rappers that uh, can come out and there's been adult, no, I'll say this last thing. No adult male rapper has gone platinum since the 1990s without calling women beats and H's on his album. Wow. That's amazing, right? And the thing is that every study will show that black men are less sexist than white men, less sexist than Latino guys, right? And so the thing is like that if, if African-American men are more likely to endorse feminist values, why is it the music produced by some? It is not the way in, in R&B. It's not the way in jazz. Or other gospel, or you know, other genres, but it is the way that we've seen hip hop in the last twenty five years, you know. Right. And so it's very disturbing, but it's an inauthentic representation of African American culture. I would argue. Wow, wow, you that's that's I, I know for the essence of time because I know, like I stated at the beginning, he's a rock star professor and, and has class. But but for the remaining you know minutes, you know, because uh, we definitely gonna have to have you back so we can really dissect this so hopefully if it's even if it's a special broadcast we're going to dig deeper let's, into let's do five more minutes oh, five, yeah. five, five yeah. more minutes yeah, okay. that's okay yeah. Yeah, yeah of course of course so you know so so just within that what where do you see or what, what would it take for i guess for then for hip-hop to reshape the establishment or is it you know over the last 25 years the commercialization the money has definitely gotten bigger um like where where do you see i guess the 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 trends going or is the trends pretty much defined you know, it's commercialization it's not no, no one is going to really 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 band together to try to shake the uh the the, uh, the establishment or is there some possible way that can happen yeah so i think that it's interesting that when you say this and i've had this conversation for well over a decade right uh and i think that this is the first time that i've ever kind of reconsidered just the term commercialization I think that commercialization isn't itself a bad thing. And this is the very first time. It's interesting saying this, Mike. But I think that, you know, commercialization characterizes jazz, right? It characterized Marvin Gaye. I mean, Marvin Gaye was commercial. Absolutely. There's no way you get around that. Stevie Wonder. I love Stevie Wonder. One of my, and I love Prince, right? I love Michael Jackson. I love Anita Baker. I love Aretha Franklin. So, so there's a lot that has been commercial. But I think that there's a, there's a cer certain control over the artistic and creative spaces that we see in hip hop and this sort of uh, constriction that we don't see in other genres in the same way. So when we listen to all these other genres, like people didn't insist that Marvin Gaye, you know, call women B's and H's, that he just had to, you know, Stevie Wonder must be, you know, hostile to women. They must celebrate selling crack or back then selling heroin and how great it is to sell heroin, right? And so I think that we have that in hip-hop, but I think that hip-hop can exist. I mean, in the case of Drake or, or Kanye or J. Cole, you have, you have or Kendrick, right? But it's interesting that Kendrick has not sold, at, as much as Kendrick is celebrated as an MC, he has not sold as much as uh, one would think. He's never had a number one, uh, number one hit, right? And, which is crazy to think, right? That, that Kendrick Lamar is, is celebrated, but he's not someone who is... Um, you know, a classic sort of like, you know, ignorant what people call coon rapper. And I think that 
one can be commercial and still downplay the the anti-black styles. The problem is that when we think about who's going to buy the albums, the, uh, you know, we have we have the issue of uh, you know certain appeals. So I don't, I really don't I don't know I don't have the, the easy answer for it. I would think that the the music is out there. Uh, people decide to promote certain things. Uh, radios I listen to um, XM radio all the time and. I could I imagine if you turn on XM radio right now, like Shade Four or Five. There's some dude calling people ninjas, celebrating selling crack, and or calling them B's and H's. All all those things are going on. And you take someone like Macklemore, the white rapper. I mean, he's someone who's gone platinum without, you know, he's a white guy, so he, you know he hasn't called people you know ninjas. Uh, but on his album, uh, you know, he had the uh, on the heist. You know, Schoolboy Q was a, a guest rapper. We call women B's and H's. But for the most part, that album went without using, employing the misogynistic tropes that we typically have. And I think that uh, last thing, Kanye West, when he came out with Graduation, and uh, I think it was 07, it dropped the same day that uh, 50 Cent dropped yeah, 50 his Cent. album. Yep, yep. That, that was a, a brilliant album. He barely called women B's and H's. And it, it would have gone platinum had he not. So I don't think it was essential for him to, to use misogynistic language. But... Um, I do think it's possible for people to do it without, you know, the the joys of, of, you know, killing black people or denigrating women. So I think it's possible. And I think it's possible to be commercially successful at the same time. You follow me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it was really about a lot of that A&R. You, when you, you, you have ample evidence where you will see people being promoted uh, and people not being promoted. And you can almost find like these ideological sort of like differences uh, in, in this sort of artists out there. And there are actually a lot of artists out there. Uh, you go to YouTube. There's a cat named uh, Napoleon the Legend, who's you know a new cat coming up, who is like very powerful, and he also offers very powerful critiques of commercial hip hop. And big, you know, Killer Mike does that too. Of course, uh, we have a lot of folks that are have been around for a long time. And, and of course, Immortal Technique is another one. But Immortal Technique, he has the same sort of gender issues that you know that that are quite uh, problematic. But you know, he's someone also who's kind of anti-corporate control in many ways. Right, 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 right. For sure, for sure. So, so, so in conclusion, Dr. Oakbar, I definitely appreciate you for coming to the studio. What's next for you? I would say the next book you're working on, what does that look like? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on this book on Atlanta now. And it's, okay. uh, it's, it's going very slowly, but I have an advanced contract. It's actually, the manuscript is due to the press um, in, the, in the spring. So I'm going to be ducking and dodging the press come March and, and April. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be picking up the phone. <laughs> I'm going to be responding to my emails uh, because I, it's, it's really not uh, moving as, as swiftly as I had hoped. But the, the book, I'm actually going to Atlanta tomorrow, so I'll be doing some work on the interviewing some people. Yep. And uh, I hope this, this book is a... Um, you know, when it comes out, I hope it does make a, you know, a, a nice impact in the field. But so look, looking at, at the rise of, uh, of of municipal control in a certain sphere in Atlanta over the last 50 years. OK, OK, cool, yeah. cool, cool. Well, Dr. Ogbar, I definitely appreciate you for coming in the studio, taking some time to, 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 to rap with us. No point intended. Um, and, and, and we're definitely going to have you back in the studio. Uh, so for the uh, for the motivational jumpstart, we're going to take a quick break. We have another rock star guest in building. And uh, we're just going to keep with the motivation right here on the Motivational Jumpstart. All right. Welcome back to the Motivational Jumpstart right here on WHU West Stores. We just had the legend, the, the remarkable, incredible Dr. Jeffrey Oakbar, hip-hop historian, 
U.S. history, African-American studies, just just incredible, remarkable brother out there in the world. So to the listeners, hopefully you was inspired. We're going to have him back because just that whole intersection of hip hop and education and just the history, just feel like so many people really just don't know. And I feel like this, you know, if you ever could have a conversation with Dr. Oakbar, he he breaks it down. But, you know, so definitely appreciate you all for still tuning in. And in studio, we have another rock star, man, a good brother. You know, I've been fortunate enough to, to, to be uh, creating a brotherhood with over the past few months and it's only going to grow. You know, Mr. Reese Hall. How you doing, brother? Good morning to you, Michael. Blessed morning. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you to this radio station, UConn. We showing up. So, uh, man, this has been such a transition, I must say. It's a lot different than serving tables at Lido's. Shout out to the old job. Shout out to the family. But at the same time, be great in everything you do. Uh-huh. So if you're serving tables, be the best server. And I'm on a pass right now to become best grad student I could be and get his PhD and, and, and put out work just like the great professor you saw before me. Absolutely, brother. So tell, tell, tell the listeners just a little bit. I mean, the first question always just a little, little bit about yourself, where you're from, and what makes you come alive? What inspires you, Reese? Yeah, uh, so I'm from Maryland, D.C. area. Lived in there the majority of my life. Uh, was recently an undergrad at the University of Maryland. That's where I just graduated. Uh-huh. But I grew up in Greenbelt, Maryland. Uh, moved to Castle Boulevard. Lived in a lot of places, to be honest with you. But I've always had a passion for um, education and talking to other black men. And my mom instilled it into me from a young age. So she used to have me, I read uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin in sixth grade. And uh-huh. they was, everybody was saying, what you reading that book for? That's way above your pay grade. You don't. It's funny how they'll tell you like not to read black literature, but you'll read Greek history that's not even real. You know what I mean? You'll read Greek mythology. So like whether it's watching Roots as a kid and... She wouldn't just say, watch it, like, have a conversation about it. Say, what didn't you understand? What do you critique about the way the narrative was told? How do you see certain black characters always fitting into specific tropes? So she had me challenging these ideas from a young age, and I'm so blessed for that. So thank you, Mom. So that has inspired the route that I I went upon and that I've had a lot of people carrying me through. It was my senior year in high school. Uh, I was in the 12th grade, and I had this teacher, uh, Ms. Flood, and shout-outs to you as well. And she taught a sociology course at at, uh, at Paint Branch High School. And I don't know, it was just some day I was like, I like this sociology thing. I couldn't see myself being a doctor, but I'd, I'd like to try it out. And Ms. Flood told me, no, she started calling me Dr. Hall. Like, I thought it was a joke at first. I was like, Dr. Hall? But I mean, you speak positivity and you speak into existence the best you can. You know what I mean? Like, if you have a dream, you just got to keep shooting at it. And next thing I know, by God's graces, I'm at the University of Maryland studying sociology. And it's just funny. I put it this way. Each step of the path, it feels like I've had someone else hand me off, almost like a running back from the, from the quarterback. I had my guidance counselor at Paint Branch, Mr. Olafon. Mm-hmm. He handed me off to another great guy, uh, Everett Davidge at the University of Maryland. I mean, I've had Dean Nickerson hand me off to Dr. Sean Ray. And now I'm here at UConn under the great tutelage of Dr. Matthew Huey. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's just each path of the way I've had brilliant people stepping up to try to make brilliance out of me to say, okay, Reese, you were great, but we want you to become refined. And one of the things I always struggle with is missing small, fine details. And as a grad student, I'm really dealing with it right now. But missing final details could be the thing that causes you to flunk a paper. It could be the thing that causes you to miss your bills. Or it could also be the thing that, in a lot of what I research now, missing the finer details is part of the reason why, for example, black women always get left out of social movements. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? How do you go from Ella Baker to Elisa Garza, where you have the movers of these great, impactful 
uh, social movements don't even get recognition for the role that they play. You know what I mean? Why are we trying to place them in boxes yet? We'll give, and this is no disrespect to the black men who have also been great civil rights leaders, but like, what are we doing if we're not, what are we doing if we're bringing the same type of discrimination upon ourselves? So my work right now, or the work that I aspire to continue to do, is looking at how black masculinity has been constructed throughout history. So a lot of the stuff that the previous professor was just speaking about, whether it be through hip hop, whether it be through literature, whether it be through just engagement in the streets, and also looking at how identities clash. So how is black masculinity actually at times come to be the enemy of black femininity? Why does it try to repress? Why aren't these great black feminist scholars, like why isn't Dr. Patricia Hill Collins covered in every basic sociology, women's studies, and course across the nation, mm -hmm. American studies, you know what I mean? So that's where a lot of my work is right now. Kimberly Crenshaw is just, it's just such a great year. So I'm really blessed. Absolutely. Man, I didn't know Matt Hewitt was your, was your a, a advisor. Yeah, okay. That, I, I definitely, that's another that incredible person I you, need to have. I tell you, if there is anyone who wants to get a, a basic, not even basic, advanced, what, if you want to know something, like if you want to learn about whiteness, if you want to about these constructions of society, get Whitebound, get White Savior film. Come to UConn, study under this guy. He, he's really shaping me up. Yeah, yeah, so my frat bro, man. He, yeah, okay, okay. Y'all Sigmas are doing big things, man. Absolutely, big brother. Respect. So, so, so take the listeners, man, on a journey. Man. Like, like how, how outside of this, this, this great toolage and the, and the individuals that these great mentors and people that you've been fortunate, shout out to moms out there, you know, who's definitely had the impact on you, but... What, what's a little bit of your story, man? Like, yeah. what, what's a little bit of your story? Obviously, you in a new, you in New England now. You it's know what I mean? It's, 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 man, listen, brother, it gets a lot colder. Uh, Trust me, I can, I can definitely vouch for that. It's warm in the studio though, so I love it. I yeah, love ab it. absolutely, brother. So, so, but what's a little bit of, of, of your story, man? That, that you know, I feel that 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 has shaped and molded you to to who you are present day. Yeah, it's it's actually funny. I was just talking to my mom earlier this week. And uh, people who know me, I've spoken about it previously. Never met my father. Um, 22 years. Never had the chance to meet him. Doors open. So if that happens in the future, I would never shoot it down. But my mom said the other day, you're not unique, but you are special. Mm -hmm. And by that she means there's actually a lot of uh, young black students who have similar experiences in that regard, who have had a parent or had multiple parents or multiple important people in their lives that have been absent for a variety of reasons or just could not be there. Maybe they're trying to do something else. Maybe they're making a sacrifice. And that was a lot of frustration growing up. You, you internalize. You wonder, well, what did I do? You know what I mean? Like, what, what role am I playing in it? Was I not smart enough? Was I not attractive enough? What, what could be the reason why this person, when I go to school, and at the time it was uh, a school that was a little bit more uh, white in terms of its population, you go to school and you see all these students with both their, family, both their parents, and you wonder, like, what did I do wrong? And as you grow up, I began to think to myself, okay, well, he is not here. But there were so many great black men who actually stepped in in a variety of ways alongside my mother to, to, to just say, like, you know, like, we got a young brother out here trying to make it. I'm not going to let him do it on his own. You know what I mean? Even stuff like this. This, this is an extension of, you know what I mean? The, the fatherhood is one role, but family is, like, there's so many different ways it could be done. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And even fatherhood in itself, it's, it doesn't come in a box. Like, a lot of what I talk about today is masculinity does not have to be one way. Go out see Moonlight, by the way. It's coming out in theaters. But, so, I had the pleasure of, like, when I was in high school, my guidance counselor had this group called Invictus, in uh -huh. which he brought in black men who had come out the area had managed to 
do something in terms of with their life to assist others and come back to speak to these high school students and tell them, like, this is the path I took. These are the opportunities I was provided. And when I got to University of Maryland, there was an organization called Black Male Initiative. Shout out to Numburu. And this was an organization, very similar structure, trying to get young black men to see their worth, see their value, and make an impact to the world through their means. And I had the pleasure my senior year to be selected to be the leader of the org. And we just, we had so many different topics that we covered in the community that is just so needs to be like, there needs to be a dialogue around it, whether it be mental health, whether it be hip hop and the messages it portrays, whether it be like fragile masculinity. Like I was just like, when the professor was speaking, I was just thinking about like, old De La Soul lyrics, like, gun control means using both hands in my land, or like Nas, how he, like, you think of the Black Lives Matter movement, and I look at that and I see Nas had a song called In Too Deep, and I think it was 1997, and he said, kill a cop, shoes a little boy to instill fear, and he was like, man, like, he said, uh, the funeral comes for the little boy and nobody there, but when a cop gets shot, the mayor, everybody here, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, yo, there's nothing new about the struggle. It's just we're approaching it through so many different ways. Right, right. And I was watching, I had the chance to see a clip the other day of uh, a famous athlete, Jim Brown. It disappointed me. Oh, man. I know. Talk about it, brother. Talk he, about it. Like, I, I honestly, not just as an athlete, but also as an athlete who had a voice, he's one of those dudes I looked up to as a, like, uh, a football lover, football player. He's a legend in the field. And to see him talking down to, to the next generation, that's not what this is about. You know what I mean? If anything, I look at the mentors I've had in my life, and they've tried to uplift me. They've said, here's what we did when we were in the path, when we were in the trenches. Now it's your turn. Here's what you can do. They didn't publicly come out and chastise our methods. So that was, that was very disappointing. But at the same time, I also turn around and think about I love hip-hop. I, I see a video with Trick Daddy, and like, yo, this isn't the first time I've ever heard something like this, but you're out here not only destroying black women, or trying to at least, but trying to pit them against white and Latinas and calling them Spanish women for that matter. And it's just like, yo, where did this all come from? You know what I mean? Like, we are supposed to be our biggest uplifters. And I'm not even talking about the nonsense that people try to say in black on black crime. Because if you, if you, if you tell that, you need to go to sociology, criminal justice, African-American studies, and learn about interracial violence stats. But nonetheless, like, black men, if, if you want to have in my opinion, an impactful role in your community, take a step back and look at some of the harm you might be causing to black women. Because whether it be through repeating lyrics that talk about B's and H's, or whether it be through constantly disrespecting them and saying things about their appearance or what they should and should not be like, black women are amongst the most educated groups in America. And even those who don't have a formal education by means of degree, they're getting their impact in society. Like, for example, my sister right now, she's going to community college. People always try to joke about that. She's going to be doing great things. And she already has her license as a cosmetologist, 18 years old. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right. So we need to place value in all these different structures. Go on Facebook. I got a friend on right now who's getting his, his vocation. He's becoming a plumber. You know what I mean? Be the best plumber you can be. So don't you dare talk down about another person out here trying to make it just because you have or you're pursuing a degree. That's not what it's about. It's about uplifting each other. And that's what I think this show is all about, too. It's like, what's your path in life? And how are you doing something to make the other person next to you great at their path? Absolutely, man. It's all about sharing our truths, man. So our truths can lead to other individuals, you know, uh, uh, um, 
getting a little bit closer to their truth, the, the defining their truth and being comfortable, being uncomfortable with the situation and saying that I don't have to be socialized. And if I realized that I was socialized, guess what? If I'm a plumber and, 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 and I'm doing incredible thing, who cares? Yo, if I'm healthy, I'm happy. That's all that matters, man. And I always say, you know, a lot of people, especially from a socialization standpoint, and, and, and I think he's been an incredible man to the world, just looking at it from a Steve Jobs. But all the money in the world can still cannot save you, cannot preserve you know your 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 health. You nope. know, and a lot of times when we say, "Well, I'm driving this car," or "Well, I, I went to this Ivy League," or "I went to this PWI," or "I went to this HBCU," it's like, okay, at the end of the day, you have pride and a sense of self. But at the end of the day, if you're not healthy, if you're not happy, and you're downplaying other individuals who have who are taking different paths in life, you know, I feel like you're not part of the solution. You're part of the problem, and 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 I can appreciate you for sharing that because I know individuals right now, and, I, and it's funny, Reese, man. I always talk to individuals about just just. If okay, if if an individual gets his PhD, that's phenomenal. We're 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 on a unique journey in grad school. But if a person right now, I have a phenomenal barber, co-owns multiple barber shops. He ain't go to college. Does that mean that if the path that I take, I'm better than him? Mm-mm. You know what I mean? But so many people look at it like, oh, well, you're just this. And I feel like we get, you know, so blinded and lost within the, the socialization process. So I, I definitely appreciate you, you know, you 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 sharing that, man. So what would have been probably one of your biggest obstacles, man? We have about 10 minutes left. What, what, yeah. what has been one of your biggest obstacles to date that you face? And, and how could you inspire other people to get better? So, yeah, this is it's it's funny to talk about this topic because it spirals into a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And. I just love that right now, particularly the black community, but it's been happening for a long time, but it's it's really starting to get a lot of attention right now, is discussions of mental health in its various forms, and whether that be anxiety. It's not just exclusive to depression. However, that's a big one, and that needs to be covered. And when a celebrity comes out and says they're dealing with mental health issues, that is not something to take shots at in a rap song, by the way. Not going to say names. Mm-hmm. But, like, for me... Um, I had uh, experience with homelessness, and that actually inspired a lot of the research that I did as a senior as an undergrad. And circumstances be what they are. You know what I mean? There's, once again, not new, not unique, but just very special in terms of, like, how it went for me. But at the same time, that was a time in which my boss, Everett Davidge, stepped up considerably. Coworker Mayhul Shah. I had people who came in, and even my mom, like, still having a conversation with me, making sure I'm doing okay while she goes through the things that she's going through as well. You know what I mean? Like, that was a time that, for me, I realized how hard it is for a lot of families to just keep up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the toughest struggles is making sure you, you showered on a regular basis, make sure your clothes are washed, make sure, like... You know what I mean? Like making sure you you talk to the people who are doing things for you, letting them stay at your place, thanking them considerably. You know what I mean? Over the summertime, trying to get all my stuff moved out so that nobody notices me. Got caught by the cops one time. It was not fun. You know what I mean? And and you can imagine what that's like, particularly as a black man, when you're hyper-visible because you're an alleged super predator. So that was something that, I'll be real with you and say, just was not a great experience. But then again, that... It's funny how sometimes our our most difficult times can be our inspiration for our our best efforts. So I got to do a lot of my senior studies around homeless culture in the metropolitan Washington area. You know what I mean? Finding out other stories of young black students and young people of color that are finding a way. I'll be honest with you and say it was my engagement with homeless studies that led me to be so interested 
in the Latinx struggles that they deal with in this country. And then in that transition to learning more about indigenous peoples and their rights and how they've historically been erased, not just in terms of genocide, but in terms of in the history books, in terms of donations by the, I mean, in terms of repayments by the government for what was taken from them. And this is where the whole concept of intersectionality, like Kimberly Crenshaw comes up, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and getting into inarticulations. You look at all these different communities of color. You look at uh, LGBTQIA plus plus communities. Mm-hmm. You look at low SES communities and you see the struggles that are faced. Eh, there are some degrees of uniqueness to it, but they're definitely special. But they're all kind of linked to similar areas. And one of the best things I could do, to be quite honest with you as a black scholar, is once I did become the leader of, of Black Male Initiative, start reaching out to these other groups. Start reaching out to the American Indian Student Union, to Pluma's Political Latinx United for Movement and Action Society. You know what I mean? Start reaching out to all these different groups, the Asian American Student Union. Find out where you're struggling in terms of where the areas that you have been taken from in society. Find out how you're trying to empower your community and say, how can we collaborate? You know what I mean? And, and Baltimore, this like, oh, my God. I'm, I'm D.C., but I have to give shout-outs to Baltimore. They've been taken over in Maryland. Like, in the aftermath of the uprising, which I, I, there's going to be, there's classes taught on that, by the way, and that's only two years old. There's classes taught about what happened in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. It's a tragedy, though at the same time, some of the strongest and most driven students I know at University of Maryland right now are Baltimore students, and they're going back home every winter break, even during the semester, and they're doing big things right now because they're not going to be held down by these tragedies that were placed upon them. They're going to use it as power. You see what's happening in Ferguson. Like, to be honest with you, even in Maryland, we were inspired by Ithaca. We were inspired by Cincinnati. We were inspired by Mizzou. And we had a lot of activist engagement these past two years. Mm-hmm. And that's something I'm so glad to be proud of, to be a part of, not just on the field, but also as an organizer in unseen roles. Shout-outs to the organizers out there. You know what I mean? Shout-outs to the Ella Bakers out there, the people that you never see in front of the camera holding up the sign, but the people who put together the whole thing. It's not about recognition. It's not about credit. It's not about being the face of a movement. It's about how can I play a role? And for me, I use the analogy, you know, like there might be 10 people who could roll a boat, but someone has to be in the dock and underneath the boat looking at the oars. Someone has to be down there checking to make sure the ship is functioning and someone's got to row. Someone's got to drive the boat. If we have 10 people who can do the oars and I got a great opportunity to become the person who checks on the inner workings of the boat, that's what I want to do and that's what I want to write about. You know what I mean? So Definitely, man. So within the last three minutes, man, you got a point for us, brother. You yeah. know, we're definitely going to have you back, man. You know what I mean? Just to drop more jewels and insight, man, on the, the remarkable things, man. Within these last three minutes, man, you got this dope poetry piece, man. Yeah. Right here, man. Drop some fires for us. I man. appreciate and, it. And I show off the motivational jumps out on a good note, brother. This is a shout-out to TOTUS at the University of Maryland, a class I was a TA for, spoken word, social movements and society. This was actually written by a student, Asiana, fam. So... There's a good friend of mine. Uh, This is her piece. I will tell you that I've never broken a bone in my body, but that I do take pills for anxiety. Superficial space, smiling and cheering, never crying. Yet I'm still lying about fresh cuts dripping crimson down the sides of my thighs. I will tell you that I'm carefree, that I am truly free, but I will not tell you that I'm shaking, shackled, and cowering in the shadow of my controlling mother. I will announce it to the world that I'm fine. 
With backs too tired, sitting sullen underneath clouded eyes, but won't tell you how hard it's been to smile these days. The monotony of my 24 to 7 is bruised feet meeting slabs of concrete carrying burden on backs, but just like Jesus, I keep walking. Just to deliver last night's slipshod paper job that I still got an 89 on. No matter the quality and your expertise, you'll never be as perfect and as holy as your mother dearest, says me quietly, while chasing after the degree, running towards writing, art, and my love of poetry, only feel control when dragging myself through the sand of pen and paper in my hand, only feel control when smells of peppermint and childish Gambino bumps my tributes to communion, only feel control when create masses of twisted symphonies and funerary hymns, the things that Mary disproves of. I find slowly through my artistry, I give you paradox and paragraphs of mystics that romanticize the experiences about a girl and menacing issues that terrorize her, yet that's still besides the point. What you need to know is that I am more than the demons that threaten to toy with me. I will tell you that they don't own me, that she doesn't own me, and that I'm on my way to liberation towards the land of milk and honey once again. Man, oh my God. Who was the artist again, man? Adriana Pham. She is a student doing uh, graphic design at University of Maryland, poet, mixed race studies, mixed race herself. Keep an eye on her, man. She's going to come up. Y'all going to be like, where did this girl come from? And she's going to be like, I've been here the whole time. She's uh, wonderful. This woman is wonderful. Man, powerful, powerful stuff, man. Well, I appreciate you for coming to the studio, brother. I appreciate you having me, Michael, and to the whole broadcast team. I would love to be back here again. Thank you for the previous professor. We out here trying to motivate. Trying to motivate. Y'all motivate me. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. Absolutely, man. Listen, the opportunity is always open, man, even if it's just from poetry, man. We can definitely take breaks in between guests to hear you drop, you know, a message of, of hope, of inspiration. That's all we are literally doing. My goal with the Motivational Jumpstart is just to continue to inspire a generation, man. When you're walking in purpose and you realize that your purpose is bigger than you, will hopefully outlive you. And you're not looking for credit. You're not looking for shine. You're just looking to make a difference because you see what society has done, man. And I just appreciate you for being a part of that, man. Definitely much, much, much success to you. I'm definitely a resource. The studio is definitely a resource to you, man. And to the listeners out there, I told you today was going to be a good one. I told you it was going to be some some incredible, remarkable individuals. So definitely shout out to Mr. Reese Hall, definitely Dr. Jeffrey Oakbar. And for, you know, the motivational jumpstart, definitely tune in next week. And it's about to be the top of the hour.